0: Take out your Bibles and we will actually uh, finish up Daniel tonight, perhaps, maybe, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight, so all the hinges on those Bibles, and uh, we'll jump in and be ready to turn to several other places, but we complete our series tonight, message 15 of Dancing with Lions. And we'll uh, look at um, chapter 12, the end. Uh, Let's pick up reading together in verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a, a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase." Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these, uh, of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed unto the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. and None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. But go your way to the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Folks, as mentioned, uh, we'll try to finish out our study tonight. And if our study of the book of Daniel for you has only been an exercise in information, then uh, you've certainly missed something. Because the word of God, the aim of the word of God is always transformation. Transformation. Now, my prayer is that you'll keep in mind the overarching themes of the book. One thing I certainly want you to remember uh, as we think back on the book is the sovereignty of God. We need to keep that in mind as we reflect on the book as a whole. As the children sing, this is my father's world. Now, we know that it is a world that has been plunged into sin, but nonetheless, uh, this is a world created by God. And God is at work in the hearts of His people. And we need to keep that in mind. Romans 8, 28 says that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love Him. doesn't mean that everything in and of itself is good, but God is working for the good. And so for that reason, no matter what goes on around us, a Christian ought to be the calmest person on the face of the earth. We need to understand that kings don't rise and kings don't fall, nations don't rise and fall apart from the guiding hand of God and the watchful eye of God. And again, this doesn't mean that we'll always understand everything, but one day things will become clear. And so as you reflect on these 12 chapters, certainly keep in mind the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And then secondly, I would want you to remember the power of a surrendered life. We saw all the way back there in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. What did Daniel do according to verse 8? He purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself. He had been kidnapped with some of the other cream of the crop youth from Judah, carried into exile, was going to be there for 70 years. And... Uh, he was, he was put under the watch care of the leader of the eunuchs, probably implying that Daniel and his friend, friends had been made eunuchs as well. And uh, they were going to be discipled on Babylonian ways and then enter into the king's service. And the king was going to give them the best of everything and he was going to put all that food before Daniel and his friends, food that had been offered to Babylonian deities and uh, Daniel the Bible says purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself and of course he put that test case up that they could just have water and vegetables and be tested at the end of the period of the test time and of course they were shown to be stronger and wiser than all the other uh, young people and so they were able to continue Uh, in that diet that they had asked for. But what we see there in the first chapter is when they were examined, uh, the king and his officials found Daniel wiser than all the other young people, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we know, of course, that Daniel stayed in that position. He became like the prime minister and an advisor to kings. And Nebuchadnezzar came and went. The uh, Medo-Persian kings came and went as, as far as Cyrus and, and Darius. And, uh, of course, there was uh, Belshazzar also who ruled with Nabonidus uh, after Nebuchadnezzar. All these men came and, and, and went, and yet Daniel was still there in the land. Uh, God was using him in a powerful way. And I think it starts all the way back in chapter 1 at verse 8 when Daniel purposed in his heart that he was going to be a young man of God and he was not going to compromise his faith. He took a stand for the Lord and God blessed his life. So the power of a surrendered life. And then thirdly, we need to keep in mind the reality of prophecy. We saw how the critics of the book of Daniel, uh, a lot of unbelieving critics and those who deny prophecy want to make it a 2nd century B.C. document rather than a 6th century B.C. document because they want to try to make it history rather than prophecy. That Daniel that Daniel has a late date to it, that he is actually a, a historian writing about events, that have already happened, but also kind of writing as a deceiver, trying to make himself out to be a prophet when actually he was just a historian. But all of their arguments we've looked at collapse in on themselves, and even if you were to go with that late date, we've seen much in the book of Daniel that, that uh, is forecast way into the future beyond the 2nd century B.C., And so you still can't get away from the prophetic element. Try as some want to. They can't get away from it. But prophecy is real. We've seen that in the book of Daniel. And so remember all of these things as you reflect uh, on this book. And, And we know that the kingdoms of this world are going to become more and more powerful. And they're going to become more and more wicked. It's what we've seen through human history. We've also seen in the Word of God and in this book that God is not done with the Jew yet. God will one day put down all wickedness, establish His everlasting rule of righteousness and peace. And uh, as we move into Daniel 12, we see that uh, what we cover tonight is the conclusion of that last vision. It's the conclusion of that section that began back at chapter 10. Chapter 10... Chapter 11 and chapter 12 are a unit. Chapter 10 was Daniel's prayer. He was sorrowful as he learned about the condition of his people and some of them that had gone back. And uh, Daniel receives that vision of the glorified Christ like John did in Revelation 1 uh, because Jesus is the focus of all prophecy. And then last week we looked at the actual content of the prophecy itself in chapter 11 and then in chapter 12 we see the conclusion of this prophecy and so let's jump in tonight to the to the final uh, message here on this book and as we do so I want you to remember that the Bible says that when Jesus comes back for his church it's going to be announced by the shout of the archangel. In fact, Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, what I've been teaching is that when this event happens, those left behind are going to see the work of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to be revealed, And tribulation, a time of tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel is going to be ushered in. Now notice from verse 1 it talks about Michael. At that time shall arise Michael the great prince who is in charge of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Michael seems to be the archangel who watches over the Jewish people. In fact, that's explicitly stated here. And verse 1 talks about a coming time of distress. It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. We've covered that as well. Jesus said there would be a time of tribulation such as the world had never seen before. But in the midst of that tribulation there's going to be great hope. God has reminded us so often in the Bible that we are to be people of hope. Think of how the Bible closes in, in Revelation 21, the next to the last chapter in the Bible. John says there, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any more mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Folks, we are to be a people of hope. Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the present sufferings of this age cannot even compare, cannot even begin to compare to the glory that's going to be revealed to those who know Christ. And he closes chapter 8 by saying, I'm persuaded that nothing, neither uh, height nor depth uh, nor nor life or death or or angels or demons or any other power shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're to be people of hope. And I hope that steadfast hope is a part of your life and witness. And so Daniel right away is given some wonderful words of hope for his people that chapter 12 begins with. There's wonderful news at the end of verse 1. He says, But at that time your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Remember that olive tree that we've talked about from Revelation 11 that the natural branches were broken off during the time of the Gentiles. Wild branches have been grafted in. But Paul says something's going to happen at the end to stir the Jew to jealousy and so a complete number of Israel will be saved. And Paul says there God is able to graft the natural branches back in. If he could graft the unnatural branch, the wild olive branch in, don't you think he can graft the natural branch back in? Certainly. And Revelation 7 talks about the 144,000, 12,000 out of each tribe that are going to be saved. So there's great hope for a certain amount of those who are Jews. God's going to save a remnant. I want you to see several things tonight. First of all, there is a book of life. There is a book of life, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Again, the wonderful news in verse 1, news of hope. A certain amount of the Jews will be delivered, but God clarifies who it is that will be delivered. Not every Jew, but those found written in the book. Those found written in the book. God's going to save a remnant who will receive the promises that God made to both Abraham and David. They'll come to Christ. They're not going to be saved apart from Christ. There's not a second plan of salvation. What God's going to do is stir them to jealousy, do a work in their heart, and draw them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and a complete number of them are going to be saved. And the Bible says right here that their names will be written into the book of life. Now let's think about this concept a moment of books. Find the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. We're told in Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, and verse 16, that there is a book of remembrance. He says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. A book of remembrance. And then over in Revelation 20 is where we are told about the book of life. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12. John says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. these various books that God keeps it certainly says to us that God keeps perfect records and this shouldn't surprise us one bit folks don't ever think that God's judgment is arbitrary God's judgment is not arbitrary God knows who belongs to him and who doesn't and God knows what everybody has done again his records are perfect now, we know what it is to have our name uh, in books or on rolls. You have your name on a church roll. You may have had your name as a young person on an honor society roll. You're certainly on the tax rolls, aren't you? But the only book that really matters is God's book. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 10, 20? He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Remember what had happened there in Luke 10? Jesus had sent the 70 out on that preaching mission, and as they went, they saw all kinds of miraculous things happen. And they came back rejoicing. And Jesus says, guys, that's great, but don't rejoice simply in this, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven's book. That's the reason to rejoice because the Bible says if your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. And so what's our main concern to be? Our main concern is, is my name in God's book? Not just a church role. There are too many that are CEOs, Christmas and Easter onlys, or uh, FBPO's for burial purposes only. That's the only time they're going to show up at church. But have you been born again? Is your name in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cast, cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Have I been born again? Is my name written in the book of life? That's the only question that's ultimately going to matter. And so first of all, there's a book of life. Secondly, I want you to see there are two distinct kinds of future resurrections. Look at verse 2 here. Uh, Daniel is told, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now turn with me over to John chapter 5. I told you we're going to be doing a lot of skipping around tonight in Scripture, more than we usually do. But I want you to see some of these things, how they tie in at different places in the Bible. John 5, 28 and 29 Listen to what Jesus said there. He said, do not marvel at this. In verse 28, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And again, once again, over in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so there's two separate resurrections depending on whether somebody is saved or lost. Folks, the Bible never teaches universalism. Universalism states that everybody somehow is going to make it to heaven. We'll get there on separate paths. You just need to be true to your path. You need to be sincere. But the Bible never teaches that. Jesus never taught that. Jesus taught about a broad path that leads to destruction and sadly many are on that path and a narrow path to eternal life. Folks, if all paths are equal, then the greatest tragedy in the world was the cross of Christ because Jesus died for no reason. In fact, the incarnation itself was unnecessary and Calvary should have been avoided at all costs. But of course, Bible-believing Christians don't believe that everybody's going to make it to heaven. And we don't believe that there are multiple plans of salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 16 about a man who died, a rich man who died. And he he wasn't in Hades because he was rich. Uh, The parable talks about in his life, he just lived for his riches and he ignored God. He had no heart for God and no heart for anybody else. And so he died and there he was in Hades. And he lifted up his eyes in torment. And he saw Abraham, or Lazarus rather, in Abraham's bosom. And he said, oh, that somebody could come over from that side and just put a drop of water on my tongue. And and in that parable, Jesus talked about the great gulf that nobody could cross over. Once you die, eternity settled. And when he finally found out there was no hope for him, he begged that somebody would be raised from the dead and go tell his brothers. He said, no, unless one rises, uh, if one rises from the dead even, they won't believe. And they didn't. They just need to believe the witness of Scripture. And so Jesus plainly pointed out that there's only one way to heaven and everybody doesn't make it. Which resurrection am I going to be a part of? Again, uh, John said in Revelation 20, Blessed are those who are a part of the first resurrection. Over them the second death has no power. The bodies of the rest of the dead, the ungodly dead, are going to stay in the ground until the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ is complete. And then they'll be resurrected. They'll meet God at the great white throne judgment. And then they'll be cast into the lake of fire. You see, if you've been born just once, you're going to die twice. If you've been born twice, you'll just die once. If all you've experienced is the physical birth, and not the spiritual birth. You're going to die physically, but you're going to die spiritually and be alienated from God for all of eternity. But if you've been born twice, not only physically, but spiritually, you'll only die once, the physical death, and that'll never hurt you because the Bible says, absent from the body and present with the Lord. But you've got to be born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, A more religious man than any of us in here tonight. Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Two resurrections. The first and the second. You don't want to be a part of that second. You want to be a part of the first. Thirdly, I want you to see from verse 3, it's possible to be stars in God's eyes. He says there, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Folks, who are the stars today? It's those people like in Hollywood, uh, people of the world. Some people of the world idolize them. Some of the top stars of 2012, uh, Tom Cruise, Adam uh, Sandler, Will Smith. James Cameron, who wrote and produced Avatar, Johnny Depp, Steven Spielberg, Christopher Nolan, Leonard, uh, Le- Leonard uh, Cap- DiCaprio. Those are people that are stars in the eyes of the world. And also the world pays attention to to whoever makes the the cover of Time's person of the year, although that's become quite a mess in recent years. But folks, there's a different kind of star that ought to matter to us. God's stars. Verse 3 speaks of those who turn many to righteousness. Paul said in Philippians two, fourteen to sixteen, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. You want a chapter. That records God's stars. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Let's read about some of these folks. Hebrews 11 verse 4 says. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith though he died he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Look down at verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now look at verse 13. These all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Over and over in that chapter if we were to read the rest of the chapter we would see this roll call of faith and we would see here that, that, that faith cost these people. It wasn't a comfortable life for them. But they believed God. They believed God. They followed Him. They lived lives of faith. The chapter closes by saying this world was not even worthy of them. These were men and women in the Bible that we study in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. And and we build sermon series off of some of these characters. And we hold them up as men and women to be emulated because indeed they are to be emulated. They're God's stars. And we ought to desire to be men and women of faith just like them. Living for God, being a witness, being a prayer warrior. You know, I spoke today at Taylor Glenn from, from 2 Thessalonians 3 about the relationship of preaching and prayer. That as somebody's preaching, what he says there, that, that the people of God as they listen, they can be partners together with the preaching event through prayer. That there would be boldness and clarity as we uh, preach and teach the Bible and that God's conviction would fall on people and people would be one to Christ. Sitting in a pew ought not to be a passive thing. You ought to be prayer warriors for your Sunday school teacher and prayer warriors for me and others who stand before uh, God's people and teach the Word of God. And and surrendering our lives is that holy sacrifice. These are ways that, that we can live lives of faith just like the Bible characters did. When are stars visible? They're visible at night when it's dark. Somebody says it's it's hard to live like those Bible characters did. It's a dark world. Yes, it is. But that's when stars shine or can be seen. Stars are modest. You don't have to carry a 10-pound Bible. Stars give direction. Our lives ought to be like a compass pointing people to God. God. 2 Peter 3 says that the stars in the heavens will burn out one day and pass away, but God's stars will shine forever. Fourthly, I want you to notice here characteristics of the last days. Back to Daniel 12. He says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Right here in verse 4, it could uh, signify restlessness. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Or as some commentators point out, it, it could be just be an indication of how in, in the end times people are going to be traveling all over the place. Daniel's age wouldn't have known about that. But folks, we do today. Isaac Newton, the father of modern physics, he was a Christian in 1680 when when Newton read this in Daniel 12, he said that he believed it referred to men traveling from country to country in an unprecedented manner. He said that there would be inventions that would allow men to travel quickly, possibly going as fast as 50 miles an hour. Some years later, the, the French atheist Voltaire read Newton's words and he said, see what See what a fool Christianity makes of a man. Has Newton forgotten that if man would travel at such speeds as he suggests, he'd be suffocated. His heart would stop. Well, today on the space shuttle, they travel at what? Over 18,000 miles an hour. You can get on, on an airplane, uh, When we dismiss tonight, you could be in L.A. by around midnight, right? You can leave New York and be in Paris in a matter of what? Four or five hours. He says here that that many shall run to and fro. Notice what else he says. And knowledge shall increase. The industrialized age revolutionized the world. And that's what the uh, information age is doing today. You can get a whole library today on just a little flash drive or a CD. Type in any subject on Google. It said that from Jesus to 1700, knowledge doubled. From 1700 to 1900, it doubled again. From 1900 to 1950 it doubled again. From 1950 to 1970 doubled again. Now it's said that information doubles about every. Two years, explosion of information. But look at the moral condition of the world. General Omar Bradley said these words uh, to scientists in Boston in 1948 after the atom bomb was dropped. He said, we've grasped the mystery of the atom and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. With the monstrous weapons man already has, humanity is in danger of being trapped in this world by moral adolescence. Our knowledge of science has already outstripped our capacity to control it. We have too many men of science and too few men of God. Now fifthly and lastly, he talks about the people of God are to go their way. He says there, in beginning in verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. Somebody said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time and that when the shadowing of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O Lord, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are the wise who are wise shall understand. People of God are to go their way. Basically he says to Daniel, in so many words, keep doing what you're doing. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, uh, always be abounding in he says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain doesn't matter how dark the world gets doesn't matter how much opposition the face of uh, the church might face serving God is never in vain it's never in vain He's told uh, to understand the times. There in verse ten, there'll be two revivals: one revival of unri- uh, of righteousness and one of wickedness. Second Timothy three one through five talks about the unrighteousness. Right in the last days, there'll be perilous times, dangerous times. And Paul catalogs what all is going to happen. In the last days. And how the world's not going to get better before Jesus takes us out of here in the rapture. It's going to get worse. And then when we're raptured out in tribulation, it's going to get a whole lot worse. We need to understand the times. And we need to understand God's timing if we get impatient. A thousand years with the Lord are like a day. And we need to understand our reward according to verse 12. He says, Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Blessed. You want to read about the blessing? John 14. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you if I go and prepare a place for you I'll come and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also the reward of our heavenly inheritance streets of gold yeah, seeing the saints of old yeah, but the best thing of all is being with Christ that's a good word for us What he says here in in verses 5 and following. Go your way. Keep doing what you're doing. Understand the times and understand your reward. It's a good word for us. Keep doing what you're doing. Be a witness. Remember Acts 1.8. The disciples said, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom? He says, not for you to know. But the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth. It's it's not that the end of times in the Bible is not important. Eschatology is very important. God's revealed certain things to us. We've been studying it. But Jesus is telling his disciples, keep your priority now on what it should be, the Great Commission. We've got work to do. We need to be about that work. as 2 Peter 3.18 says we need to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And as Romans 12.1 and 2 says we need to be that living sacrifice being transformed by the renewing of our mind and not being conformed the world so being about what we ought to be about the great commission growing also in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and then every day being that living sacrifice that's how we need to be living right now dark days times are urgent go your way as a believer be doing what you ought to be doing as a believer When we walk out of these doors, I like what some churches put in their parking lot as you're pulling out. Now entering the mission field. We need to remember that. We need to be about God's business. Times are urgent. We need to be growing. And we need to be living lives of surrender in all that we do. It's a good word that chapter 12 closes with. Daniel's given indications about the end. But Daniel wasn't to sit down and quit and just focus on that. He was to keep busy. Purposing in his heart the way he did all the way back in chapter 1. Amen? Any comments as we close this book?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mhm. Right. talking about the days
0: and 1335. Right. Uh a lot of commentators will say God only knows. Uh even commentators on the book of Daniel like John Walt Walford will uh will make some some pretty good guesses. Uh David Jeremiah says that uh, he could use some sanctified imagination and guess why there's a difference, but he wasn't going to. But what Walworth and others talk about from, from the, uh, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, when that's over, the battle of Armaged- Armageddon, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, uh, they just basically say the difference is some cleanup time. Between utter devastation that has happened right there at the end. Utter devastation. Death, bloodshed, all of that. Some clean up and mop up time. And Matthew 25, the judgment of the nations, the passage of all that before the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So that's their best guess. Just uh, transition time between the kingdoms of this world that are once and for all destroyed in the establishment of God's kingdom you what <laughs> but that that's a good question uh because of that discrepancy there hmm yes the the three and a half years times times and a half time. hmm
1: It's written in the first person, which means it's not a pass down story that could change from
0: passing to passing to passing. So personal testimony. I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. And some, like I point out too, the way parts of the book written in Hebrew, parts <laughs> of the book in Aramaic. So Daniel's people could understand it, and people who were unbelievers could understand the parts addressed to them. The preservation of scripture very important uh, to the ancients and to to Jews. Uh, that's why you know in the past I've encouraged y'all to go over and see passages while it's still in Charlotte, Lar- largest privately held collection of ancient manuscripts. And part of what you see over there, part of the education process as you go through and see the different manuscripts. The, the painstaking uh, efforts that they went through to be exact in copying and very exact and precise in preserving. But ultimately we know God had a hand, not only in, in the inspiration of Scripture, but the preservation of it. And and that shouldn't surprise us that God preserves his love letter to his people down through all generations. So in this case, have a that was right. Right.
1: And managed to survive the, the past seventy years so it could be
0: disseminated. Yes. The the handiwork of God on his life. The safest place for a man to be is in the will of God. Daniel was better off in Babylon than he would have been in Judah. Because God wanted him in Babylon. Certainly. Yes. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not aware of a scripture verse that teaches that. Maybe maybe there's one that I'm just not aware of, but I'm that may just be some of that sanctified imagination that David Jeremiah talks about. Now, again, there there may be some verse that talks about that. I'm not aware of one.
1: there's not a specific verse
0: that talks about it, but there's
1: Mm-hmm. Also in verse verse twelve, thirteen hundred and thirty five days. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I mean uh, that's that's uh, uh, the uh, remaining of the year. There's seventy five days in there that's not
0: accounted. Yes, because the twelve sixty, the twelve ninety, and the thirteen thirty five. Yeah. So got got two months there. Yeah. yeah. But again, Walford and some of the other conservative commentators just. In their minds, their best guess is transition time. Uh, transition time, the judging of the Matthew 25 sheep and goats, uh, mopping up at the close of the kingdoms of this world, the establishment of God's kingdom, that um, there's some time allowance transition in there.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: uh, Right. But But (laughs) bottom line, we're not. He doesn't specify exactly why there's the difference. So, you know, we are left to kind of wonder about that, and that's one of the things that the in chapter twelve that the scholars write about, talk about, and just present some different opinions.
1: Mm -hmm. Who who told you or where did you learn that uh, the uh, rich man and the poor man was a parable? Who told you that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you've got a good point. It may not be a parable. Jesus, because if it's a parable, now in defense of it not being a parable, if it is a parable, it would be the only parable where a character is actually given a name. Lazarus. And so there's arguments on both sides that it's uh, and a lot believe that it may not have been a parable. Jesus was citing there
1: was a certain
0: rich man. Right.
1: And and why would he want to fool his his uh
0: Right. Sure.
1: Anyway, right. you you, uh, you should change that it, it every time he comes up. You
0: Claude you're a mess (laughs) but but you got a good point a lot of people believe that that is not a parable yeah but just by now saying a certain rich man doesn't necessarily discount it from being a parable because in the parable of the prodigal son that's how that parable is introduced a certain man had two sons which so that phrase doesn't automatically set it up as real life characters versus parable. I wouldn't I wouldn't base my argument on that alone. Max
1: Larkin says there were no parables.
0: Period. Okay. Well, then he's going to have a problem with what Jesus said in and Mark chapter four about the way he taught his disciples. Um, so anyway. Okay. Um,
1: Bobby.
0: (laughs) Actually, you'll notice what I try to do. I kind of alternate between different genres. We'll probably go into the New Testament next. I'm I'm thinking probably along the lines of the Gospel of Mark.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Good, glad, appreciate y'all's participation and like, like I say we're missing about a lot of our crowd tonight, That's I guess the weather scared them off, hate they missed the closing one but anyway I guess that's their loss but appreciate you being here and again your participation uh, throughout it as well and um, hope it's been eye-opening in some ways but again just keep Keep these lessons right here in mind.